Welcome to Try This at Home with Leslie and Leslin, a podcast that offers you tips and tricks for solving problems, increasing happiness, and creating a better life. Hi, this is Leslin from Try This at Home. With 36 million people on unemployment and a world that's been uprooted by a pandemic, we thought this would be a good time to talk about organizing your life from a financial perspective. I spent 20 years as a financial advisor, and there are some basic tenets to feeling financially safe that never change. Today, we're talking about them. So grab a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and listen in. Hi, Leslin. Good morning. How are you? I, it's it's so weird not having actually seen you in so long because we've been doing this remotely like so many other people. But how are you? I'm good. I'm I'm taking this show on the road and I'm in a new location because finding space, quiet space away from children and husbands is getting increasingly difficult. <laughs> I am hearing that across the board from my clients. I'm hearing people say, you know, it it looked like it was going to be short term and I kind of got that mindset. And then here we are 10 weeks later and I'm still fighting to just accomplish what I need to do in a a regular workday. And it's, you know, I'm really lucky. I have one room of my house dedicated for each kind of thing. So I, I kind of go to work. I just go to a different room in my house. You know? right. I don't have to stay in the same room and have it be everything. Yes. Yeah. You are very lucky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I don't Although have I little feel, kids running around. So I feel lucky because I, I, I have the ability to go into my office and even though you know yes. I'm not open to the public, I still have an escape. So I I am very lucky as well. I will say. Yes, and likewise, I could do that if I wanted to, but then I'd have to put shoes on. Right. Yeah. Or for me, a bra. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or a bra. You know. <laughs> um, you know, I could. I'd have to put on something. Well, actually, I wouldn't have. To. You wouldn't have to. I'd have to put shoes on. Um, <laughs> but you know, unless somebody's going to see you, you don't have to do much more than that. So, I yeah. saw a really cute thing um, the other day, and it said that um, I heard that sunshine and alcohol will kill coronavirus. So if you see me drunk and bare naked in the yard, you'll know what I'm doing. (laughs) You'll know that I'm disinfecting. That's what it is. Nightly cocktails their way into my everyday life for sure now. So, oh yeah, they totally have. I mean, we've actually, we infused some uh, vodka and with cucumbers and we made up our drink and you know i think technically it's kind of like a cucumber vodka mojito but a mojito it's so it's just really an identical process to a mojito but it's with cucumber infused vodka and i put the recipe up on my personal instagram page if anybody wants to look at it super refreshing super light and fresh tasting mint and cucumber and lime really good i go to in a gin and tonic but when i run out of limes i just use fresh grapefruit so it's been good too i'll, I'll take whatever i can yeah. get my hands on 
<laughs> yeah, and I'll take great for anything. I mean, I am... I, I don't want to say I'm addicted, but I will tell you that I, because I don't drink it all the time, but I love Deep Eddie's Ruby Red Grapefruit Vodka. Ooh, and yeah. if for some reason, it has to be Deep Eddie's. But if, you know, in, in Maryland, they have, it's kind of a tradition. And for some reason, it's it's specific to Maryland, and that is the drink, an orange crush. Well, you can also get a grapefruit crush and they squeeze grapefruits right there in front of you generally at the bar. And it's another just really light and refreshing summer cocktail. And at home, it's super easy to make with Deep Eddie's Ruby Red Grapefruit and Grapefruit Pellegrino. Really good. Really tasty. I have to tell you, they go down really easy. (laughs) But anyway, I'm glad to know that you're doing well. So I was really interested in talking uh, with you about this. And once again, I feel like you have so much knowledge in so many areas In a previous life, you were a financial advisor. I was. Yes, that was like my first career. Did you like it? Um... You know, that's a really interesting question because I took a job as an investment sales rep. Essentially, I was a mutual fund sales rep in the early 80s when mutual funds were kind of new. And um, it was a little bit, I don't want to say skeevy, but it was, you know, it's a little bit like door-to-door mutual fund sales. (laughs) And I did... I did okay with it. You know, I, I got licensed. um, I had securities licenses and then kind of very quickly, I moved out of sales and into management. And so I got more um, elevated licenses that allowed me to manage. And then ultimately I met my second husband and he was he was a very successful uh, sales rep for the company that we worked for. And within maybe a year of getting married, we moved broker dealers and we really kind of went from mutual fund sales to financial planning. And so that was in the early nineties and financial planning was really a much more, I want to say kind of elite field. Um, And so I became a compliance person. And and again, I, I got my securities licenses and I held maybe seven or eight different licenses in the securities industry. And one of those being for financial planning, although my education didn't really go that direction. He was a CLU, CFP, and CHFC, Chartered Financial Consultant, I guess, um, and a Certified Financial Planner. And we built a practice, and we became independent advisors. It kind of happened serendipitously, like it was a trajectory that started out as a a wave and I kind of went with it. It became, my job was part of a vision maybe that we had built for this business. And 
for me, it was less about, I hated, hated when the market was down and people lost money. I mean, I I hated that. (laughs) And, and I went through a lot of market turns, you know, in 1987, the bottom fell out of the bond market. I had a lot of older people heavily invested in bond mutual funds. First, it was junk bonds, then it was government bonds. And, you know, and I had had this sales pitch that, you know, government bonds are backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. But, and I think I was I certainly knew as, as a process that bonds could fall in value, but it really hadn't happened to that degree before. And so many of us were emotionally unprepared for what that meant. And, you know, little old ladies who had trusted me with their money lost 20% of the portfolio and would call me at one o'clock in the morning crying because I had no boundaries back then. (laughs) I gave everybody my home phone number, you know, it's so I, did I like it? No, not enough to keep doing it. When we divorced and I sold him my share of the business, I signed a non-compete and I got to reinvent myself. And I think what I loved about that was counseling people. Right. I loved the conversations that we had. I loved understanding their connection, their emotional connection to money. So I kind of ran off of that and became a therapist. I was really excited to talk about this because my, I will avoid, like for the longest time, I will just avoid looking at something like we, you know, I I think this is best illustrated with my business finances right now. So I'm a I'm a pretty good saver for my business. I'm pretty conservative with my money. And I have wanted to make sure that through this whole COVID thing that I could still pay my employee every single week, regardless of whether or not she was working, even if it, if it even if I didn't pay her the full amount. That was really mm-hmm. important to me. So I know I have the, the money in the bank to do that. And so I just don't look at the bank account very often. I, I see the number that's in there. I know I have enough and there's really nothing I can do about this right now because I'm, you know, it is what it is basically as far as the, you know, this pandemic is concerned. So I just don't look deeply at the account. Now I have a bookkeeper and accountant, so I don't actually have to look very deeply um, on a regular basis. That's their job, but I, I hadn't been looking. And lo and behold, I found out recently that a few a few months ago, or not a few months ago, rather a few weeks ago, I got some money, a grant deposited into my account, and I didn't even know it because <laughs> I wasn't paying very good attention. And so I was like, all right, maybe I should maybe I should look closer. And time and time again, I think people well, for me, I do that. Sometimes I'll tend to avoid the situation, and obviously that doesn't make it better. So I, I was excited to talk about finances and, and why knowing is better than not knowing. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, I mean, sometimes we say these things so many times. I am going to say that knowledge is power. And if I, you know, maybe that needs to be the name of our of our podcast, because we're always saying that knowledge is power. The more you know, I think that's an NBC slogan, right? <laughs> You know, and I and I 
I want to make it clear that I mean business is kind of a whole different ball game, but small businesses and families can sometimes be compared because there are either way you look at it, there are operational expenses, and I I think the bulk of this conversation is really designed toward helping the average American family and maybe even the people who live from paycheck to paycheck, because there are some big mistakes that we have Mm -hmm. a tendency to make. And there are some pretty easy tricks or tips that we can engage in or enact in order to eliminate those mistakes. And I, I wanted to, to run a clip here. This is, an interview that was done actually in in 2016. But to be honest, it's just as applicable today. So let's so let's listen. The Federal Reserve Household Economic Survey, in which they asked the question, if you had a $400 emergency, could you meet that emergency? And 47% of the respondents said that they couldn't meet that emergency without either having to borrow money or to sell something. Wow, that is shocking and depressing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, $400. Really what they're saying is most people do not have $400 that they can pull out of the bank. In a savings account. In a city or any, I mean, they just don't have an extra $400. And that's not unusual. I mean, you know, back in the day when I was door to door selling mutual funds, essentially we sold these kind of dollar cost averaging plans and they were savings accounts, you know, and we would tell people, look, you save $50 a month, you save it, you put it in a mutual fund. And over time it grows to X amount of money, which is all true stuff. Right. But the idea that somebody even back then had $50 a month to save was pretty, I mean, depending on who you talk to, there were a lot of people who who couldn't pull together $50 a month. They wanted to, but they couldn't. Or they, you know, they. when I say they couldn't, they, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways, the problem isn't that you can't, it's that you're choosing not to. Okay? We've been trying to teach, you know, our kids, I think I mentioned before that our children have green light cards, which is a just a little app on your phone, but they're tied to basically debit cards for your children that are highly controllable. And we're trying to get our kids to understand, you know, the importance of money and saving and all that stuff. And some are better than others, but our daughter is, has been listening the most and she actually has $80 invested in the stock market right now. Hmm. So, and, and, you know, she's, she's saved up her allowance and she, amassed, you know, I think $90. So she put $80 in there, but, um, and poor little girl, she, she was really in, in love with Wendy's and Macy's stock and she's lost money, but you know, you don't, I I think one misconception that I had all along until, you know, maybe the recent couple of years is that you have to have a ton of money in order to do this. And that's just not true. Right. So, 
here's the first thing. I mean, I think we have to kind of start in the base at down at the basics. First of all, you have to have different kinds of money, right? And and the very first rule of thumb is you have to live within your means. You you will have no money ever if you (laughs) live outside of your means. And and that's a big problem for most. The reason that people don't have $400 is because they're living outside of their means, you know, and we get a, a, a raise and we think, oh, I can have a two bedroom apartment now that instead of a one bedroom apartment, or we get a, another promotion and we say, this is, I'm going to go buy myself a new car. And we say, oh, instead of going camping this year, we can spend a week in Hilton Head. You know, and I think that this is the single biggest problem as to why people don't have money because they live outside their means. We don't want to, right? We don't, it's not like we say, hey, let me spend more than I make. But we don't say no to ourselves or to our partners or to our children. Even when I was actively working as a financial planner, I would, and I would say even going back further, when I was just a quote-unquote mutual fund salesman, the idea was trying to get middle-class America to learn how to save money in the markets, right? Like I said, we would set up these monthly savings accounts, and I would go into what would what was considered the projects in Norfolk, Virginia. So people are living in subsidized housing and I'm not judging, I'm just explaining. And I would walk in and they would have great big projection televisions and the newest stereo equipment, right? But but they qualified to live in subsidized housing. And again, it's not I'm not judging, but when I heard well, I don't have enough money to do this. And I looked around and I thought, well, then we need to talk about what your priorities are. What? And I'm, again, if that's your priority, fine. That's perfectly okay with me. But then you have to understand the consequence of that priority is that you're not going to be able to put new tires on your car when they go bald. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think... First, a lot of people, you know, some friends and just my own children, it doesn't like it can happen in smaller chunks. Like it can happen, you know, not just with big screen TVs. It's like, okay, every time I open Instagram, someone is trying to influence me to purchase something. And, you know, you do that 10 times and there goes a thousand dollars. Yeah. Or God bless just Amazon. How easy is it right now to pull out your debit card, get online and buy something, whether you have the money for it or not. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I have some ideas. So first, first things first, if you want to be able to save money, you have to live within your means. We talked about that. In order to live within your means, you need to budget. And so budgeting is very, it's not simple, but conceptually it's simple, right? You take a look at how much you make, you take 30% of that, and you designate that to housing costs. You take another 10% of that, you designate it to uh, transportation costs. You take 25%, and that's personal care slash food. 
Um, and you should take a minimum of 10% of that and designate it to savings, some kind of savings. When I say minimum, that is the absolute bare minimum that you right. should start with. If you bring home $4,000 a month, $400 a month needs to go to savings. And it has to be, we have to mentally think of that as if it was a bill that we were paying. Right. Right. It's, it's too easy otherwise to push it off if you don't take it yeah. seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you won't, if you, if you know, it's like having kids, if you wait till you can afford a kid, how many of us would actually have one? None. You know, <laughs> right. You know, if you wait until you can afford to save money, you're not going to save money because human beings are too hedonically oriented. We have the wants too many of us give in to our wants. And I think what I'm saying is you have to look at the long-term want. I want to retire when I'm 60 instead of 70, right? I want to retire maybe even earlier. I, I, I want to be able to buy a house someday. Um, if you want those things, then you have to focus on having them but that means today and you have to backtrack today you have to do something so that you can get to that space and if that means that you have to buy a smaller house if it means that you have to eat filet mignon a little bit less then that's what it means i mean let's face it warren buffett still lives in the house that he bought in 1958. He is a billionaire, and he still lives in a house that he bought in 1958. He's one of the most frugal men that I've ever, ever had the opportunity to learn about. And we have a clip, actually. So this is, uh, he's um, being interviewed about a documentary, a documentary, which, by the way, is available on Netflix. It's called, it's an HBO documentary, and it's called Becoming Warren Buffett. And this clip tells you how he decides what he's going to have for breakfast. So listen in. So there you have it. Depending <laughs> on whether or not the market's up or down, depending whether or not he's going to spend $2 or $3. And yeah. every single day, he goes to the same McDonald's for breakfast. I love a sausage McMuffin with egg and cheese. 317 is a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. The market's down this morning, so I think I'll pass up the 317 and go for the 295. And he spends max $3. I feel like maybe someone should talk to him about healthy breakfast choices. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't look that unhealthy. And my gosh, he's an old guy right now, you know? I, you know, I think the point is, is that he says, well, wait a minute. You know, and some might say this borders on absurd. And I don't know that I would argue with that, but I, but it's I think it's a it's metaphorically important because he's saying I am not going to waste money. To me, it says that this is just so core to the person that he is. It doesn't. I mean, he, he probably is this way with much, much, much bigger things as well. But it's just woven into the fabric of his being that it's just second nature to do it, even with a breakfast sandwich. Yeah. 
I have a friend who will come over for mimosas every once in a while. And she's, and when she comes, she'll bring a bottle of champagne and I'm pretty sure the brand of champagne that she buys for mimosas is in the 16 to $20 range per bottle. When I buy champagne for mimosas, I buy the $5.99 Andre bottle because if I'm mixing that stuff with orange juice, what the hell difference does it make? <laughs> Right. Why am I, and my mother, you know, my mother wouldn't go out to eat very often. And she's like, why am I going to go out and spend a fortune on food and then literally take a dump and flush it down the toilet the next day? Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think frugality, if we want to talk about how did Warren Buffett get rich, he got rich because he became conscious of how he spent his money. If I yes. had a dollar for every time somebody said, I don't know where my money goes, I, I would be a rich woman. You know, I made a very good amount of money as a 19, 20 year old girl. And I was just absolutely 100% completely and totally reckless with spending. I mm -hmm. had no... I didn't even care to try to budget. A friend of mine and myself, we would laugh at the overdraft fees that we got. And we would joke about how the bank owned us. That is, oh I mean, talk about young and stupid, right? I mean, good grief. Yeah. And I just think about how much money that was over the time that I worked at that company. It's a lot of money. It's ridiculous that I was so stupid. And I, uh, you know, when you know better, you do better. So I'm trying to make sure my kids are not that stupid. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I want to, when I hear the word stupid, I always react. I always feel a little, like a little alarm in my head because I don't know that it's, yeah. I, I, to me, that's a judgment, right? That it's, I guess, it's, yeah. is it stupid or is it, is that what you wanted to do in that moment that in based on what, based on what you knew in that moment in time that felt important to you, right? Today, if I understand what you're saying, you're saying, well, I don't have the same priorities today. And I think that's key, right? There was a time in my life where I thought going to the DuPont in a new dress and having um, a very expensive bottle of wine was something that I would find enjoyment from. Right. Today, I would way rather be popping open a blue moon on my deck eating wings. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I did that and I realized that it wasn't all that. I didn't, it wasn't what I thought it was. It's kind of like the difference between carrying a Gucci purse <laughs> versus the $40 wallet that I just walk around with now. Yeah. When I think, when I think about spending $600 on a purse today, it turns my stomach. Right. But it's not a judgment. It's more of what I've, what I realize I value. Right. Well, yeah. You'd rather buy art supplies now or something else that, you know, you could be creative with and yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's about, so when I say first things first, you have to live within your means 
then you have to create a budget. And if your budget is buying Gucci purses, then budget it. If you don't have the money for it, you can't budget it, right? And remember that before you budget the Gucci purse, you have to budget that 10% savings, okay? Right. Um, When we were building our business, our, our financial advisory business, I learned how to cook hamburger in 600 different ways because every <laughs> dime we made went back into our business. Yeah. Eventually I got to the point where I could go to the grocery store and I didn't have to pay as close of attention to the bright price of things. If we wanted hamburger that was 10% or 90% lean, I could get that. I didn't have to go with the 72% lean because I still had to get hamburger though, because that's what I budgeted. Right. Um, Once you do that, you have to understand that all of this planning gets derailed in a hot minute. If you don't have short-term funds available, you can't be investing in the stock market if you don't have enough money, if you don't have that $400 in the bank. Sure. The emergency fund is by rule 90 days of your monthly expenses. And the pandemic is the exact reason why. Yep. It's true. (laughs) Right. Because there is no guarantee that you're going to have your job. There is no guarantee that you're going to make it to work tomorrow. There is no guarantee just that, that, you know, a tree is not going to fall and you have to come up with a thousand dollars for your homeowner's insurance deductible, or somebody's going to run into you and they're uninsured. And so you have to come up with your $500 car insurance deductible, in a hot minute, those kind of things, unforeseen, unpredictable things, can derail everything if you don't have an emergency fund available. So I call this the worst month ever. And what, how I came up with our number is I say, okay, let's pretend we have the worst month ever. And that means we have to pay for the homeowner's insurance deductible. We have to, we both get in a car accident. We have to pay for two car insurance deductibles. Every single member of our family has to go to the emergency room. So we have to pay for those uh, co-pays and we are so sick in bed that we can't pay our mortgage or any of our bills. That's the worst month ever. And so we budget for that. (laughs) Yeah. And that, and I want everybody to hear that is a minimum number that needs to be liquid, liquid mean, meaning accessible at any given time. Right. Um, And it's hard. And for some people that can feel insurmountable, but you know, if you take a look at every cup of Starbucks that you buy or every lunch that you buy instead of pack or every gym membership that you pay for instead of, you know, my, I have a daughter today who's taking one month of her gym membership fees plus her yoga class. So she does two things. She belongs to planet fitness and she takes a yoga class. I think she said it was $170 for the month. So she's taking $170. She is going to subscribe to an online yoga 
platform and she bought herself some weights. So now for the next six months, she's only spending what she would have spent in one month. Right. Yes. Now, is she getting out to the gym? No, but that's probably a better decision today, right? Right. Um, but she here she is, 170 times five, that's almost $1,000 that she's saving by doing it herself. Right. And she's still, you know, obviously health is a priority for her. So she's not just saying, okay, well, I'm going to let this go. She's saying, I'm going to figure out a way to make this work and, and still, you know, be able to pad my budget. Yeah. Yeah. When, when I was a little girl, so I learned a lot, a lot of the DIY slash budget stuff from my grandmother and my mother who were really great penny pinchers. Now my mother was, she pinched pennies so she could buy the Gucci purse. (laughs) But you know, when I was little, little, um, I wanted a dollhouse and she couldn't afford to buy me the one I saw that in the catalog. So she made one out of cardboard and she, you know, she put wallpaper in that thing. She went around to all her friends and said, do you have any spare wallpaper? She went down to the carpet score store and asked for carpet scraps. Um, I thought it was the best dollhouse on the planet. It probably was, (laughs) you know, and she made it and she made it out of literally scraps. Right. So so I think, you know, they, I don't know that they could have afforded it, but even if you can, does that mean you have to? Warren Buffett can afford breakfast, right? He can afford to hire a chef to cook him breakfast. Every, every meal of the day. Yeah. (laughs) But he doesn't because he doesn't have, you know, because it's not his priority. Yeah. So after short term money, you need medium term money. This is your new car down the road. This is your your living room sofa. Once you have that short term savings, you should be so acclimated at that point to putting away money that you never again buy something on credit. So this is tip number three. I lost track, but I think it's number three. Don't ever, ever, ever keep a balance on your credit cards. Use your credit card. You need to have, you need to build a credit history. And I would say that if you wanted to run a balance, understand that it is going to cost you money, find the lowest interest card you possibly can and pay it off in 90 days at the outside. Okay, so I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't always listen to this rule. My husband and I are and and a lot of members of my family. We're totally on board with the not carrying an interest-bearing balance on a credit card. But we often take advantage of like for example, we bought new carpet for our house 2 years ago. And Lowe's had a no interest for two years type deal. So we did that and we paid it monthly. Yeah, I think that's fine if that was the best price for the carpet. Yes, for sure. You see, most of the time, that's not going to be the best price. Because let's face it, that company has to make money. They're not giving you that carpet out of the goodness of their heart at the lowest possible deal. 
And if they are, if I'm wrong about that, great. But I, you know, and I not, I know not everybody loves Dave Ramsey, but his advice is often incredibly practical. And the truth is he's made an entire career out of understanding what successful people do and mimicking that. And it's hard to argue with that. Right. So, and essentially he says, if you're buying something that costs more than a couple hundred dollars research, the crap out of it. And, and I, and I, you know, here again, knowledge is power, right? If I'm going to spend $2,000 on carpeting, but I can get at no interest because I can get it now, or I take the um, 24 months to that's $167 a month. No, it's a 80, $83 a month. I can take that $83 a month or, and put it aside. And in two years I can have $2,000, but maybe it's only a thousand dollars. If I go pay cash, if I go pay cash, I can have that carpet for $83 a month. Yeah. For $83 a month in a year versus paying $83 a month for two years. So there's an advantage of getting it now, but I would tell you that I would tell you that that's an example of falling victim to this I want it now mentality that gets us in trouble in the first place, right? If you're going to be wealthy, you have to have patience. You have to have the patience to set aside the money and go get it. And then in the meantime, as you're accumulating the money, you do the research and you get the best price that you can get. I taught my children the envelope system, which I I think is by hands down one of the best ways to prepare financially. And that is to make a commitment to pay for everything in cash. But then most importantly, prioritize. So I've got everything that I want, I make an envelope for. Mm-hmm. And then and then I take cash and I put cash in these envelopes. And what's interesting, every single time I've, I've really employed this, this um, strategy, I've reevaluated my priorities along the way. And I may have put you know, $350 in envelope A. And by the time I'd collected it, envelope C really took on a higher priority. And so I would move the money into envelope C so I could have that a little faster. That's how we taught our kids to to save money. They would babysit and we'd come home and say, okay, you get 25 or 30% of this goes in your savings account at the bank. 30% goes in your envelope for whatever it is you're saving toward. And you can take the other 30% or I guess there's, it'd be 40% at that point and do whatever you want with it. And they, we required that they pay for at least half of anything that they wanted to do, whether it was Boy Scout camp, um, the French trip to Europe, it didn't matter. Modeling. One of my daughters took uh, modeling classes and they paid for half because right. when you're invested, right. you, you have a tendency to just work really hard for it. Where I'm, I'm already formulating the plan because my children are very fortunate. They can go to college for free where my husband works, but I, I'm trying to figure out when that time arrives, how to make them invested in that because 
if you know that it's free and you're going to graduate debt free, I, I just hope that they would still take it as seriously. But my fear is that they won't. Yeah. And that's hard because how many 21 year olds really understand debt? Right. <laughs> right. You know, they have no idea that means that they're not going to get a car out of college or a, a house out of college. I have so many clients who are tens and tens of thousands of dollars in debt, and they have no perception of what that means. Right. You know, I think everybody should be taught compounding interest. And both on a savings side and on a on debt side, because, you know, our credit cards, most of them are somewhere between 16 and 24 percent. Well, 24 percent. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. It, and, you know, I know that if you look at your credit card statement, it says if you only make the minimum payment, it's going to take you X amount of years. Seriously, people, <laughs> debt you will drown. It's, it's, you know, and there's, there's a million blog posts about how to get out of debt. You know, we could, Dave Ramsey, again, like him or lumping, he's a little harsh. He's hard around the edges, but he has really good advice. His advice about buying a car is probably the best advice out there. And, but we talked about this, I think last year in one of our episodes and buying a new car, um, is one of the biggest things that we waste money on in our culture. Everybody wants a new car, but buying a car is a waste of money. So if you don't have money to waste, don't buy a new car. You buy a car that you can afford. I don't care if it's a thousand dollars right now, buy a thousand dollar car and save $500 a month. Cause that's going to be your car payment, right? Minimum. I think he says the average car payment right now, the new car payment is over $500 a month, which is more than I paid for my whole first apartment. <laughs> well, there, I think there's also a misconception that used cars are, are crappy. And I, we, we are used car people. We have always purchased new cars. And I will just say that that is flat out false. You, you can get an immaculate, well cared for used car if you a look really hard and b if you're patient because like you you know you, not, you can't just go pick a perfect used car for that you have to wait until someone sells one but um, my husband bought a uh, Toyota Prius many years ago I can't remember it was it was gosh eight maybe I don't know was it six seven years old when he bought it and now he's had it it's at least ten years old right now but. My mom got in it not, I don't know, a, a year after we got it. And she's like, wow, this is a great car. I'm like, ha, huh, it's a 2010. She's like, oh, I thought it was new. I, because he, it's very clean and he takes very good care of it. And, you know, it, it's, been, it's been a wonderful, wonderful car. And it was very, very inexpensive. But, you know, our priority isn't amazing new cars. Our priority is more in the line of family vacations. So, yeah. We have used cars so we can go on family vacations. Yeah. And, you know, I, again, I want to stress, you're not probably going to get a quality used car for a thousand dollars, but if you start there, like if my choice is to 
I have a $500 a month car payment for 84 months. That's seven years, people. That's $35,000 for an $18,000 car. So if I have $500 a month to make the car payment and $1,000 for taxes and tags, the smarter decision is to go buy a $1,000 car or take public transportation for a year, save $6,000, go buy a $6,000 car. A year from then, I'm going to trade in that $6,000 car, add $6,000 to it. I can get a $10,000 car and so on and so forth until you got to the, get to the point where you're every year or two you are turning over for cash yeah a better car and frankly i had a suburban that car we did pay cash for it our business bought it this was years ago i drove that car for 17 years oh my gosh 17 years we called it the tank <laughs> I raised my children in that car. You know, it's yeah. they were probably more sad to see it go. It had two hundred and eighty thousand miles on it when I sold it. But oh it, it, seriously, the point is, is that these financial decisions that we're making, we have to make them based on what we can afford, without going into debt, and without derailing us in the process because we don't have money in the bank for those little things that pop up. And listen, we could probably talk about this for, for two whole new episodes. Cause I know that we ranted a little bit and we're already way over our usual time. So we're going to end this discussion for today, but any questions that you have about this, I want to strongly recommend Dave Ramsey's blog. There are so many, if you want to hear what he has to, to, to say specifically about cars, one of his blogs is The Truth About Car Payments, and he doesn't hold back on that at all. Watch the Warren Buffett, uh, Becoming Warren Buffett documentary. There's a lot of good advice on there. And be patient. Financial wealth yeah. is not something that you snap your fingers and you have. Um, a little worksheet to fill out. So hopefully perfect. Yeah. At the very least, it'll get you started thinking about what does my budget look like? What am I actually going to spend? It's going to take you some time to organize and plan because you need to go through or track all of your expenses. I, I want to suggest also that you designate those expenses. Is this a need or want? Yeah. And those wants, that's discretionary income, man. You know, my stitch fix, that's a want. No, that's a, yes, that's a want. <laughs> it's going to get confused for a minute. My stitch fix is a want. I have enough clothes to probably last me the rest of my life. But uh, nobody's suggesting that you deny yourself. But you have to make sure that what you, those little pleasures that you have, that they're within your means. That's the key within your means. So for today, we're really happy that you took the time to listen to us. And thanks for hanging in there today with this long discussion. Next week, we're going to be talking about the book Finished by John Acuff. And if a cuff, sorry. And if you have any 
perfectionistic tendencies, you are going to want to listen. We hope you'll join us. For now, this is Leslie and Leslin, hoping you will try us at home. All perspectives and opinions expressed during this podcast are for educational and informational purposes only. There is no direct or indirect intention to provide psychotherapy or mental health services. If you are seeking counsel for individual circumstances, please consult with a local health professional.